Hello, friends. We are back with episode 130 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. Summer in July is winding down. That means kids are probably starting to back to school very soon, which um, for probably mixed emotions for parents out there, but it is a time of change nonetheless. But what doesn't change is we've got a lot of great content to share with you with Our Weekly itself. My name is Eric Nance, and I'm delighted you join us once again for, for this episode. And joining me virtually at the right, so to speak, is my great co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing great, Eric. Doing great. Uh, we're in midsummer here uh, on the East Coast, and and just like over here, the, the highlights are, are heating up. That's right. We got a lot of hot stuff to talk about, and we're going to kick things off mentioning our curator this week is Batul Almerzak. So thank you so much, Batul, for this great issue. And as always, she had tremendous help from our iWiki team members and curators like you all around the world. So let's start with somebody who, boy, just got off that massive road trip. But boy, his uh, assistant professor, Andrew Heiss, returns to the highlights and he's got some very helpful tips. And these aren't necessarily coming from a blog post. This is straight from his data visualization with our course where the materials are freely available online. And boy, do they look fantastic. But it is a very important topic, especially for those that are newer to their journey of R. And of course, seasoned, you might say veterans like me who never find a shortage of things that break. And if you only heard the pre-show, you would have heard me telling Mike about a massive thing that broke in my production app. But that's what the bugging's for, right? So what Andrew talks about here in this course is um, it's a little module here about tips for debugging and cleaning broken code, which yes, as I said, I break code a lot. And he starts off with, I think what this work, this uh, course is showing a lot of, is a mix of tidyverse data processing and G visualizations with ggplot2. You know, very much routine kind of competencies we do in our daily uh, data science workflows. But boy, the way you write that code can also be an indicator of just potentially what issues you might reside. So in the middle of Andrew's post here, he gives a snippet where there are some bugs in the code, but it is a little difficult to find. Sure, you could run this in your R session and figure it out for yourself, but when you just inspect this snippet, you'll notice a few things. And it gets to some of the recommendations that Andrew's talking about. You might have a mix of lines in your code of dplyr processing where you've got perhaps parentheses that aren't easily found in terms of opening and closing. You might not detect when they, when they match up. You might have a lot of code on the same line. You might mix up different calls to mutate and others, maybe mixing up the parentheses around that. So there are important techniques that Andrew talks about here to help you know, minimize the potential risk there. One of them is good code formatting. And this gets to styling. Some we talked about in previous episodes. And there are resources that Andrew links to in this post. But when you're doing, say, a, a chained pipeline, where you're using either Magritte pipe or the base R pipe, you will usually be, have a better time with it if you continue a new line after each call to the pipe. So that it's very much like a stepwise kind of long form of the pipeline. When you start to mix things up a bit, 
that can be a little bit disastrous. And that's where more generally having lot, having multiple lines in your snippet, it may seem like more space is taken. It may seem more verbose, but boy, readability is hugely important here. I think that trumps everything. So I'd rather have an extra 10 or more lines of line breaks so that I can read these different mutate calls or filter calls or ggplot2 facet calls much easier than if I try to cram a lot of this in one line and and really get confused where the parentheses or brackets are and everything like that. So that's the first great tip that I, I wholeheartedly recommend for sure because that also gives you the ability to run these snippets line by line so you can kind of see in the middle of your pipeline if things are working as you expect. You can easily do that in our studio or whatever your IDE of choice is. And that's a very smooth, a smooth way of thinking there. Um, the other is indentation. Yes, this has a lot of subjective components to this. We touched on in previous episodes of just how much is too much or how much is enough. But it is a huge help. When you have a function that may have a lot of parameters, breaking that up line by line and making sure that it's indented so you can quickly see what are the function parameter calls versus like the wrapping function itself. And this also comes in handy with conditional logic, if else statements and the like. That is where having that kind of consistent structure of indentation whether you like the default two spaces or you really love those four spaces like in Python or maybe in eight spaces, we don't judge. It's all preference at that point. But being consistent, I think, is hugely important. So this is a great piece of advice that Andrew talks about in this post. And throughout this post like post or a module, whatever you want to call it, he's got awesome use of Cordal here because I... I have an eagle eye whenever I detect a chordal site, and this is definitely one of those where it's a mix of the code snippets and nice tabbed boxes where he's actually got little screencasts demonstrating these concepts in action. That is really top-notch stuff. You can kind of tell Andrew puts a lot of time and effort in building these materials. So I think whether you're one of his students or like us, we're just interested observers, definitely check out this and the rest of his uh data visualization with our site, because there's a lot of great content that many of you in the R community, I think, will will be very appreciative of and likely learn something new. Well, Andrew's such a good teacher, and, and it shows in his blog posts like this one here. And one thing that I thought was really nice and, and is a nice feature of Quarto, especially for those who are trying to teach at all, is the code annotation feature uh, that Quarto offers now that allows you to put a, a little number um, to the right side of a particular code chunk in a Quarto document that's being echoed. And uh, you can line it up with that particular line of code. And then below the code chunk itself, you can explain what that line is doing or, or what is going on. So Andrew purposely, uh, at the beginning of this blog post, wrote some, some code that had four things wrong with it. Um, and it was very difficult to spot for a lot of the reasons that you talked about, Eric. Uh, lack of lack of spacing, indentation, code formatting, and things like that. Um, but he was able to call out using the code annotation feature in Quarto the the four things um, that were wrong with that particular code and, and spell it out in a really nice way uh, for the audience and the folks that are, are were trying to learn from um, this particular 
exercise. So one, just a phenomenal use of, of phenomenal use of code annotation. If that's a feature that you have not checked out in Quarto before, I would highly recommend it. I think it's it's fairly new. I don't know if it came out with the initial release of Quarto, um, but it's it's a very powerful feature for those who are trying to teach, especially. And like you said, Eric. Uh, indent your code, put things, uh, put new each argument on a new line. Uh, space is free. No one is printing out your code. Uh, and, and if they are, you might want to start job hunting. That is hot take number one of the <laughs> podcast this week. <laughs> but a lot of this blog post revolves around different ways and shortcuts uh, for formatting your code. There's actually a couple short videos in here that explain how to format your code a few different ways with some of the keyboard shortcuts that we have in the RStudio IDE, uh, with the add-ins and menus uh, and, and things like that. We obviously have, uh, I believe, Control-I if you are on a Windows machine. I'm imagining it's it's Command-I if you're on a Mac uh, for re-indenting re your code, which you can also uh get by way of the code uh, dropdown at the top heading of the RStudio IDE. And there's also uh, Control-Shift-A, which is one that I honestly had not necessarily used before, Eric. I don't know about you, um, but that takes a little bit more of an aggressive approach, I guess, to formatting your code. Um, but it doesn't fix everything, as Andrew notes. Uh, it, it line breaks after Magritte pipes and, and things like that. You might have to watch out for if you're using Control-Shift-A. You might have to do some additional formatting on top of that. Um, and, you know... I couldn't agree with Andrew more that I really think that formatting your code can actually be a great way to catch syntax errors visually because it we all know that the most common syntax errors are mismatched parentheses and, and missing or extra commas. And when you indent your code or, or format your code uh, the way that Andrew is describing, it just makes it so obvious where the parentheses need to be and where they do not need to be and where the commas need to be and where they do not need to be. Um, so I, I couldn't argue more uh, similarly than, than Andrew for uh, code formatting and really taking time to, to format the code that you're writing. And the last point that, that he makes uh, is one that really goes hand in hand with formatting your code, uh, especially when it comes to the tidyverse and, and um, chained functions using base pipe or Magritte pipe or chained geoms um, using the, the plus operator, right, as you're stitching portions of a ggplot together, stitching layers of a ggplot together. And when you put those things on new lines, uh, when you put sort of each section of, of a pipe chain or a ggplot chain on a new line, it allows you to run portions of that whole code chunk incrementally, right? By just highlighting the lines uh, from the beginning down that you want to try running and you can see sort of how that code gets executed incrementally step by step. It makes it very easy to do that if you put the different functions or, or different arguments uh, on new lines and you take the time to format your code correctly. So there's a ton of advantages between catching syntax errors and running code incrementally uh, to taking time to, to format your code. So I think it's a, a great sort of unique blog post that Andrew has put together for us. It's not something that we talk about enough, uh, especially for folks who are either newer to programming or, or, or newer to R, um, right? It can be very much a secondhand thought, right? You just want to write code that works at, at the start. Uh, thinking about formatting can, can be a topic that probably can overwhelm a new user, but it's it's, it's always great uh, to have some content around how to do it 
and why it's important. And honestly, nobody explains topics like this better than Andrew. So I'm glad that he was the one that put this together. Me too. And also, I think having these kind of, you know, rationales of why you want to invest time in this or this skill set. This is also great justification if you're working in, say, a team environment and you're all jointly developing that maybe an R package together, Shiny app together, or another huge project of getting that buy-in from everybody on a consistent style. Because once you get that buy-in from everybody, then no matter who contributed that feature or that new function, it's all going to look in the similar in the similar construction. And it will be immensely easier for reviewers as these features get merged in, say, to your production branch of your app or packages repository for everybody to be consistent with that. So I think having having these principles in mind of why a team might want to invest in a consistent styling approach is just as important as anything else. And and Andrew, yep, just want to say again, that website for your course is fantastic. Like that is really inspiring. And boy, it makes me wish I had been a student now versus years ago because we didn't have any of this back in my day. There's my uh, sandbox moment, I guess. <laughs> and speaking of things that look fantastic, Mike, of course, it's our weekly. That means at some point we're going to have a great highlight of what you can do with your visualizations. And we've got we have a collection of amazing tips for your ggplot 2 customizations coming from the U.S. Geological Survey, in particular, data scientists Elmira Azapur, Althea Archer, Hallie Corson-Dosh, and C. Nell. Hopefully I got those right, all four of you, if you're listening. But this is a great post where they talk about ways that they've customized their ggplots that they've been working on at their, at their line of work. And there's a collection of tips from each one of these authors. There's like at least 10 or 12 of these tips in general. And they, as far as the cohesive story around it, they all highlight some of the great ways that you can tap into this vast community of ggplot2 extension packages to take that extra or gain that extra bit of polish, that extra bit of customization. So you could honestly fool a lot of people when you put a plot with some of these customizations on into, they may not know where this came from. They may think you did this in Photoshop you know, or, or whatever those fancy proprietary imaging editing software are. These look straight publication quality and they are amazing. So I'm not going to read all of them myself. I'm going to highlight the ones that I think are really top notch here that taught me something I didn't know about before. I think annotations and pointing to influential observations is a really important skill set. And that's where there are two tips here that kind of go along those lines. If you want to point to certain parts in your plot, there is um, a way to do geome curves so you can have arrows that aren't just like the typical straight arrow. You can do a nice curved effect to that to really draw their attention to certain parts of your visualization. Great things to play with as throughout these um, tips that are talked about here, there is great example code that you could run right away with the packages installed on your system. And code annotations with Geom Text Path, that's another excellent way to highlight some of these influential, maybe bars on a histogram or a density plot or other curves, you know, maybe best fit lines. 
and you can make sure that the annotation is angled appropriately. So you're not just stuck with a horizontal orientation or a straight vertical orientation. You can angle that as you see fit. And it gets even more fun, if you will, when you can think about just adding some custom special effects. I didn't know there was a package called GGFX, or however you want to say it, but you can add filters and shaders that seem straight out of some you know, very influential uh, image editing software. You can put that right in your ggplot and have that look really professional and really polished at the same time. And then also there is mention of composing multiple plots together with a package I've heard about before, but I've heard great things about called cowplot. So you can add these additional facets or additional panels together to really um, make your images have a more cohesive, you might say, storytelling, if you will. That's a great package, Cowplot, to make that happen. And there's also um, tips here about GG Animate, which has been hugely popular in the community as well. Um, I know I've, I've loved seeing these animations in action. They're very quick to make now. There's been great improvements to this ever since Thomas Lynn Peterson took over GG Animate many years ago. It is a top-notch package to give that extra extra storytelling power or getting you know that extra highlight to your stakeholders of what's happening, say over time or over another dimension in your plot. So again, all these tips have example code you can try out today, but it's just a great place to go. If you know there's a lot out there in the GGBot2 ecosystem, but you're not quite sure what it's capable of, this post will get your creative juices going. So credit to all the authors here on this great post and USGS. Yeah, keep this coming. This is this is right up our alley. This was super cool. And if you've, if you've ever worried about where your taxpayer dollars are, are going in the U.S., this, this blog will assure you that they are, are not going to waste, at least when it comes to the work that the U.S. <laughs> uh, Geological Survey which appears to be a division of the U.S. Department of the Interior, um, they've provided us with just this incredible set of tips and tricks for making your ggplots go uh, not from zero to 100, but but zero to 1,000, I think. And Eric, we talk a lot about making shiny apps that don't look like shiny apps. And I think we ought to talk about today making ggplots that don't look like ggplots, right? And and as you (laughs) said... You'd think that these outputs that they're creating are, are done using some professional graphic design software, but but no, this is all open source R packages all the time. Um, one of my favorite highlights, I know you touched on just about all of them, Eric, uh, but one plot that I thought was really, really cool was a rainfall quantity plot where they actually used an, a package called GG Image, such that sort of the values at the end of this lollipop chart if you can you can think of a lollipop chart the the bubbles at the end of that lollipop chart are are raindrops Um, and the size of the raindrop i think indicates the the quantity uh, of rainfall that took place and the y-axis is inverted such that zero is at the top Uh, so the farther down on the chart the raindrop has fallen the more rain uh has has uh, taken place the, the more rain uh, that that's fallen um and it's broken out by state I, I just thought it was a really really clever data visualization uh and really nice use of this package called gg image that allows you to utilize an image uh in this case it was a, a raindrop as part of your plot um so lots of great nuggets here uh, this is going to be 
a, a article that I am going to probably come back to time and time and again um, because I'm always constantly trying to put together uh, quarter reports, especially nowadays, um, with images and plots in, in them that really stand out um, from the crowd and, and look like they're not necessarily GG plots. And uh, this is just going to be a phenomenal resource for me to continue to, to come back to, uh, to to spruce up the GG plots that I'm creating. Yep, I literally added it to my vast collection of probably over 10,000 R bookmarks in my bookmarking system because I'm always I'm always eager to not only up my ggpod2 game but this is a great thing i can fall back on whenever i'm teaching others at the company about some tricks you can do to ggpod2 that you might not know about like i said at least half of these i didn't know about so i'm gonna definitely be putting these to practice but it i mean and you look at some of the code snippets behind you you may be thinking sure ggpod2 is powerful boy i'm gonna have to do a lot of code for it and that raindrop plot that you just mentioned like more than half of that code is just the data munching to get the data ready for the plot it's actually pretty elegant once you actually get to your visualization stage. So I think once you once you grasp, you know, the power that you get with ggplot2 and the way you can compose these in a logical fashion and the customization you can do the themes, it all just folds together nicely. Like it's the way we think. And that's why the grammar of graphics has been, you know, so hugely influential in the world of visualization. And I'm going to get to my hot take here. I think ours had a leg up on visualization for many, many years and only now is, say, other languages like Python slowly starting to catch up. I think, you know, what you can accomplish with ggplot2, it's hard to match in other, in other frameworks. That's my hot take, and I'm sticking to it. I love it. No, I think the other the other languages are are trying to copy ggplot2 quite a bit and trying to implement uh, the the grammar of graphics, right? That we've had in R for so long, and and hopefully we haven't taken for for granted because it's it's super powerful. So thanks to all the folks. I know there's many. I know Hadley gets a lot of the credit for it, um, but there I'm sure he would agree and say that there are many 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 folks who have gone into the creation of, of ggplot2 to make it the incredible tool that it is for us and all of our data visualization efforts. And um, yeah, this was a phenomenal blog about about customization. And it looks like uh, we're set up to talk about maybe a little bit more customization, especially when it comes to materials hosted in HTML or on the web. Yeah, you mentioned it, Mike. You know, we, we, we pride ourselves on making unique looking design experiences with some of the shiny ass we worked on. But and you may be thinking, what's in it for me if you're just kind of a, you know, you're a data scientist, you're using R for your day job with various, you know, data explorations or other things. What why would I want to know about how some of this styling works? Right. Well, making his triumphant return to the highlights is Albert Rapp. It's been a while, but we're glad to have you back, Albert, with his latest blog post on four reasons to learn HTML and CSS as an R programmer. Certainly, if you're in the web development world, this has become, you know, second nature to you probably of how you create, craft these, you know, unique design experiences. But there's a multitude of ways that you can get started very efficiently with getting that extra bit of polish and design, you know, excellence in the R, you know, artifacts that you're making, so to speak. He leads off, ironically, with something that has synergy with what we just talked about in the world of ggplot2. 
there is a package called GG Text that will let you create markdown formatted annotations or titles and whatnot. And with markdown, guess what that's based in, folks? That's also based in HTML too. So if you know a little bit of HTML and you wanna add a little pop to an existing visualization, like in this example of the uh, Palmer Penguins data set, where he's doing a scatter plot of the bill length versus flipper length, and he wanted to you know, color the dots by male and female, logical kind of grouping there. Instead of just having the default title in one color with ggtext, he is able, with a clever use of the glue package on top of it, add a little bit of HTML tagging in the forms of a span and a style definition, which in essence is CSS, to say, okay, make the color for the male word actually the same color that's on the plot. Same for the female word in the title with the female uh, scatter plot color choice. These things may seem small under the surface, but again, with just a little bit of HTML, because that, that geom title was powered by Markdown, he can make that happen. So there's some great ways to kind of activate your HTML and CSS customization in your visualizations without even being in Shiny or some of those interactive HTML widgets just yet. But it's not just visualizations that can take this approach. Even tables, especially those created with GT, a package we've had multiple highlights about in this year with some substantial updates, that also you can supercharge the design experience of your table generation with a little bit of HTML as well, with ways that you could even introduce, in essence, gradient backgrounds for your table and your cells and put different symbols as values in your table. Even distribution plots, like he has in this example of the weight of each of the penguin species, he's got a nice kind of geome density curve in the distribution column. That is amazing stuff. That I've never seen that before with GT, but yeah, I better believe I'm gonna try out that approach of a little CSS and HTML magic. And then rounding out the post here, you may be thinking, well, but how did Albert really get to know some of this? You know, sure, he might love to live in the dev console of Google Chrome, but that's not my style. Well, guess what? The thing we've been talking about that some of these sites have been authored with, Quartal itself, is a great way to play with some of this stuff. And he's got two little screencasts here that show you how you can customize your Quartal report outputs with HTML and CSS, which kind of opens your mind for what else is possible, even outside of Quartal itself. But it gives you a great, you might say, testing bed or sandbox to play with some of this styling operations with. I think that's really good. And of course, last and certainly not least, is what you can do with Shiny, with a little HTML and CSS magic. Even little things like those action buttons we like to have to launch a backend process or whatnot. The default look is utilitarian, but if you wanna just customize that a little bit, that's where a lot of these elements in Shiny that are user-facing will often have hooks to customizing the style of it. And that gets to CSS again. So in his example here, he has a nice little customization to make the button a round, kind of ellipse shape, not the standard square shape. 
it may not seem like much, but then you can do things with font, you can do things with color, and also combine that with packages we talked about in the past, like VS Lib. You've got lots of interesting ways to give yourself that unique web experience for your customers. Again, mixing and matching the parts you want to customize with a little bit of HTML and CSS magic and wrappers along the way. There, I still I mentioned this story before, but many um, our studio conferences ago, having dinner with Winston Chang one night, and he was bemoaning that a lot of these shiny dashboards just looked exactly the same. Well, no excuse now. With things like BSLib and low HTML CSS knowledge, you can create that unique experience, which is something I'm trying to do much more often with my shiny apps these days. So Albert has always tremendous job with this healthy mix of code examples, screencasts, but ways to get you inspired as an R user that may not have put a lot of stock into these techniques. These give you a lot of value for what you're producing and the way you communicate your results or in some cases your app experiences. I'm a visual person, so I am really loving how visual all of these highlights are this week. And as Albert argues, and as you agree with Eric, learning a little bit of CSS and HTML isn't just going to pay off when you're doing web development. It will pay off in Cordo. It'll pay off in creating GT tables. It'll create a, pay off when creating Shiny apps and even ggplot2, as he shows in his first example. Um, so I, I think this is a fantastic blog just showing how sort of extensible a little bit of knowledge of HTML and CSS go. Um, like I said earlier, I am pretty knee-deep in Quarto on a day-to-day basis these days. And Albert has two short videos here uh, that are nice explainers on how you can style anything in Quarto, even if you don't know HTML and CSS right now. So they're great introductory videos that are on YouTube and linked in his blog post. So I would highly recommend checking those out. Eric, we're in the trust tree right now. Uh, How many hours have you spent in the dev console of Google Chrome? Uh, well, lately this year, a little more than I like, but before this year, I was maybe an hour tops for like six months. Not much at all. That's not bad that I cannot say the same. Uh, we were, (laughs) (laughs) we, we were talking, uh, I'm in the long tail of that distribution. We were talking about, uh, sharing some tales from the shiny trenches at our PositConf workshop in September. Uh, we were talking about that earlier offline, and I could see this particular uh, possibly being a, a topic because uh, that dev console and, and making those little tiny styling changes and thinking that you've found the perfect uh, snippet of, of CSS that is going to work, and all of a sudden it doesn't work because there's some exclamation important <laughs> overriding it or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> A lot of tales from those trenches, but uh, Albert rounds out the the blog with uh, customizing a button in Shiny with a little bit of inline uh, styling of an action button, and I, I think sort of your next step after you got comfortable with uh, writing your your CSS in line in in a shiny app would probably be to take the next step and, and create a custom you know styles.css file or something like that um so it, this blog is i think a really nice beginner's guide to using html and css uh, again i think it's a, a phenomenal you know niche topic but a, a very important topic for those of us who you know when you're you're in business on a day-to-day basis the folks that are consuming the work that you are creating probably want to see it styled to your company's branding, right? That's going to go a long way towards that 
product that you're creating actually getting used uh, in, in a board report or something like that and, and going up the food chain. So it, a lot of times it's the little things and uh, Albert has wrapped up some really great tips on how to accomplish those little things here. Yeah, and especially for those situations where your report or your app or a combination of both are going to executives or leadership, sometimes these details matter even just as much as the answer themselves. But knowing that it's you don't have to be the web dev expert to latch onto these is is a huge help. And and Mike, I'm now very much looking forward to that story that you'll share at the workshop because boy, I bet we're gonna have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and I've learned that uh, formatting formatting goes a long, long, long way. Perfect way to tie it all together, right? All these highlights relate to each other in some way, shape, or form. And what else is good related here is the rest of this issue. we got a lot of great additional content that Patil has cured for us, and we'll touch on some additional highlights here. And mine is a bit more on the continuity side than what we talked about last time. But uh, Bruno Rodriguez is not stopping his journey with integrating R with the next OS and next packaging system. And he's even combining one of my favorite packages from the esteemed Will Landau itself in his latest blog post on combining NICS and R to run targets pipelines. And boy, if this isn't an advertisement for reproducibility and execution environments, I don't know what is because targets is all about that and linking these two together. I think is really intriguing that um, it's still early days in Bruno's journey here. He's even built an experimental package called Ricks where he's helping automate the building of some of these configuration files we talked about last week in a more friendly way. So I think there's still much work to be done, but it's great to see the progress he's making. And I am, as I said, very curiously watching. And then once I'm, I'm done with that workshop, I'm diving full speed ahead in the Nixon R. For sure. I found a really cool blog post called uh, Probabilistic Forecasting for the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023, which is going on right now in New Zealand. If you haven't tuned in, you need to tune in. It is exciting stuff. Um, Akeem Zilas, who's a, a faculty of economics and statistics at Innsbruck University in Austria, uh, has authored this this blog post. And it's got a lot of data visualization in here as well as some uh, statistical modeling using what's called a bookmaker consensus model. So if you're into sports analytics uh, and sports machine learning, this might be one for you. Uh, quick spoiler, the U.S. is the favorite in his model with a 21.5% probability of winning the World Cup, uh, followed by England and then Spain. So we will be tuning in to see how accurate how uh, accurate uh, Akeem's model is here for the Women's World Cup. I uh, will be be watching right along. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, uh, I'd say knowing women's soccer, that's probably a safe a safe you know, prediction. But hey, in sports, anything can happen. And uh, fun fact, folks, New Zealand is also the birthplace of R itself. So, I mean, what a great place to have the FIFA World Cup, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, and what would be great also for, for me and Mike is hearing from all of you out there. So we're going to give you a little bit of um, ways that you can get in touch with us. First is which is if you have this app and or have this podcast and you're a podcast player in the show notes, there's a direct link to our contact page. You want to send us some feedback there. Greatly appreciated. Also helping the RWiki project itself. Every issue has its upcoming draft linked directly above, which can be added upon with a simple pull request. 
all marked down all the time. So you can find direct links to that on rweekly.org. And also getting in touch with us personally. If you have one of the modern podcast apps like Podverse or Fountain or Castomatic, um, it's very easy to use those to send us a little boost along the way. And you can also do that through the podcast index itself, where this podcast is probably hosted on. And their details about that will be in the show notes. And also, we are on social media. I don't even know what to call this one anymore, but I'm still going to call it Twitter. I, I don't know anymore. Um, I'm at the RCast either way, but I don't have a, a fancy blue check next to me, and I probably never will anymore. So take that for what it's worth. But the easier way to get a hold of me is on Mastodon for sure. I'm at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can listeners find you? Yeah, likewise, send me a carrier pigeon, I guess, at, at this point. But <laughs> but Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. On Twitter, uh, Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org on Mastodon. I guess we just have to install all the apps nowadays and, and check 100 apps to try to recreate what used to exist, unfortunately, for data science, social media, and our little corner here yeah it's a lot of engineering once again that we didn't anticipate but that's the way the world works but in any event what you don't have to engineer is that our weekly is always here we're always just our weekly the org and this podcast so thank you so much for listening everybody and we look forward to our next episode of our weekly highlights next week